Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality one topic at a time. This is Icarus Boreality with Shane Jones. What is up, Inquirers? Welcome to an eerie episode of Inquiries of Our Reality. I say eerie because today I get to dive into some fascinatingly eerie folklore all pertaining to the Florida and Appalachian areas with one of the top folklorists on the topic who really does his background research. And I think you guys are really going to dig this one. But before we get into that, of course, we got to knock out the front of house stuff. So if you guys don't mind taking an extra five seconds to rate the show on Spotify, I would definitely appreciate it. And if you're so inclined as to take an extra 30 seconds to leave a rating for the show on iTunes, then of course I will read it on the show, give you guys a shout out. And any reviews or ratings that you guys give the show, I definitely appreciate because it's an awesome way to help the show grow, make it so it's seen by more people. Uh, I see all the numbers out there. I see all you guys listening to the show. So if you guys don't mind taking that extra little bit of time, if you haven't already, to do one of those two things, I uh, appreciate it more than you guys know, of course. And uh, if you guys want to get updates on anything pertaining to the show, the best place to do that through is through social media. Uh, The one that I'm the most active on, of course, is Instagram. But of course, I do also have a Facebook, but everything kind of gets pushed off of the Instagram and into the Facebook. So the main spot to interact with me is probably Instagram, but also building up the uh, Telegram and the Discord. Uh, The Telegram, not as much as the Discord. The Discord, though, that's where uh, everything seems to be popping off. Got a bunch of new people hopping in there, having some awesome conversations. So uh, anybody that's not in there, I highly recommend that you pop in there. And of course, you can find that link down in the show description if that sounds like something that might interest you. Uh, If anybody's interested in being a guest on the show, whether you're an author, researcher, experiencer, contactee, occultist, whistleblower, uh, abductee, contactee, uh, cryptid hunter, uh, open-minded individual philosopher. I can I can keep going and going and going with this list. If you're an open-minded individual, I want to sit down with you. I want to have a conversation with you on the show. So don't hesitate to shoot me a message on Instagram if you want to get a hold of me. Uh, you guys can also email me at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com or you guys can go to the link tree and fill out the submission form and that will go, of course, directly to my email. Uh, more often than not, it seems like stuff that I send out goes to the spammer junk folder. So keep your eyes there and make sure nothing gets missed because I do respond to every single message that you guys send me. Uh, if you guys can't get enough 
of the stuff I do. If you're not already checking it out, I highly recommend going and checking out Bizarre Encounters. And just like the name, my two awesome co-hosts, Orin and Jenny and I dive into anything that would be considered a bizarre encounter, be it paranormal, supernatural, cryptid, uh, weird time phenomenon, anything like that. We're uh, expanding the show. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff going on over there. So if you guys aren't already checking it out, like I said, don't forget to go and check that out. Uh, if you guys want to keep tabs on all the stuff I do, I keep everything under the Open Minds Media umbrella. Like uh, I'm sure you heard the little jingle in the beginning of this show and you hear it in the front of Bizarre Encounters. But if you guys want to keep tabs on anything dropping all in one place, I highly recommend going and checking out the Open Minds Media Instagram, Facebook, uh, anywhere on social media, Open Minds Media is. That's a good place to be able to find Everything all in one place. Try to make it quick and easy, of course. And uh, if you guys want to support the show, there's multiple ways to do so. Uh, you guys can go and check out the Open Minds Media Patreon. There you get a little bit more bang for your buck. You don't just get one show. You get two shows. You get Bizarre Encounters and you get Inquiries of All Reality, of course. And uh, you get the spinoff show that's going to be coming soon in the future here if it hasn't already dropped, uh, Inquiries, Thoughts, and Theories, which is going to be a spinoff of this show. And that more than likely is going to be a Patreon exclusive. But uh, if you guys want to go and check that out, there's multiple tiers. Uh, you get different things with the different tiers. Uh, some of those things include ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, lives of episodes, live replays, which is the raw video format. If you guys aren't able to make it to the live episodes, uh, exclusive merch store discounts, monthly member hangouts. Uh, there's going to be exclusive giveaways just for certain Patreon members. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on over there. So go and check out the tiers, figure out which one suits you the best. And of course, any support is always appreciated. And uh, you guys can also go and donate to the show on Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, or Red Circle, which is the RSS host for the show. If you guys are interested in doing it that way, you guys can go down to the bottom of the show description. You'll see something along the lines of donate on Red Circle. Uh, click that link, follow the trail, and uh, don't forget to send me a message, of course, and let me know that you donated because I definitely love to give you guys a shout out on the show for uh, showing your love and support. And the third way you guys can support the show is through the Open Minds Media Merch Store. There you'll find designs for not just this show, but all the different shows I do. And I uh, should be expanding, making some more designs in there. Those should hopefully be uploaded on there soon if they're not already. Um, you'll probably see updates on those through the Instagram, through the Facebook, if you guys want to keep tabs and figure out when those new designs are going to drop. Uh, anybody that buys merch from the merch store, I would definitely appreciate it if you guys didn't mind sending me a picture of you guys wearing it because I'd love to repost it on the page and show that there's love and support out there, of course. And uh, while we're talking about love and support, you guys can go and check out Crypto Theology. Joe's always killing it over there with his new designs. Uh, always dropping new stuff, like constantly. So you guys could even go and follow him on Instagram if you want to see all the cool stuff that he's making, uh, all pertaining to cryptids, UFOs, paranormal stuff. Uh, if you dig this show, I definitely think you're going to dig Crypto Theology. And uh, of course, everything that I mentioned, all available in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, author, folklorist, and podcaster, Mark Muncy. How's it going today? Oh, man. Thank you for that intro. Yeah, it's uh, it's going really good. Man of many titles. I uh, didn't quite know where to place you at, but you're all over the board and you do a bunch of research into the interesting stuff that we like to talk about on this show. So, you know, had to give you some type of a fancy title to start off with. And folklorist always sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, and that's pretty close to what it is. I mean, um, it's... Uh, I, I, Right now, my, my recent stuff has been, you know, I'm interviewing all these uh, people uh, that are giving me their family cryptids. They're, they're what I like to call holler monsters. These, uh, you know, from the, the backwoods of Appalachia and stuff where, uh, uh, or Appalachia, if it's above the Mason-Dixon line, there's very, you know, 
specific way of pronouncing it, the various regions. But, uh, you know, and these families are telling me their stories now, especially, you know, the newest book came out, Erie Appalachia. And, uh, and with that, I've been getting even more stories and stuff. So I feel like I'm archiving these amazing tales that, you know, the Mimas and Peepaws are dying off and they're telling us these stories and, you know, the, the next generation just is, you know, they're playing on the phone and, and don't really care about the, the, you know, the strange monster that's supposed to live in the woods behind their house. That's terrorized their family for generations. Uh, if it's not in, uh, you know, Slender Man or on Creepypasta, they're like, you have it in your own backyard, but they don't care. So, you know, so I feel like I'm saving these stories. So that's, that's part of what I do. That's honestly one of the best things that you can do, in my opinion, because a lot of these awesome stories are word of mouth. And just like a lot of like the native stories in folklore, a lot of them die off and people stop telling the tales. And thanks to the Internet, anything can be changed. People can add details to things. So if you actually have somebody that's going around getting the solid, hard hitting facts, putting them in a book so that people aren't able to like change the information, like it, it's something needed that I feel like a lot of people aren't necessarily doing because they just want to, you know, make the story as extravagant as they possibly can. They're not doing like the straight facts of what people said the original folklore is. So honestly, I have a lot of respect for the way you do your books and I really like it. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And it's, and it, and it started, you know, way back. Uh, we, we ran a haunted house here in a haunted house attraction here in St. Petersburg. Uh, and it was a called Hellview cemetery. And it was based on a local legend, which is the lost cemeteries of Tampa Bay. There are all these cemeteries that were pioneer cemeteries and slave cemeteries. And then they would just disappear when these storms would come and everybody'd move and the town would be destroyed. And then they'd rebuild and, you know, oh, look at all this flat land. Let's put a house here. Not realizing they were building on old cemeteries. Uh, one of them was called Hillview. So, of course, for us, we had to make it Hellview, you know, <laughs> Tales from the Crypt fans that we were. And that, but that's what we, that was our hook for our haunted house was let's take these stories and let's spooky them up. Let's make them scarier. And I didn't realize what happened was years later, as we were looking into real legends and stuff, I started realizing, oh, some of this stuff is from our old haunted house and that's our haunted house version. So, you know, it's like, oh, well that, that kind of screwed things up. So that's why I, I, I'm making up for that. I feel like. Well, just out of curiosity, what were some of the ones you included in the haunted house and where do they kind of like deter from like what you guys did versus like the actual story? Okay. One of my favorites is this, there's this legendary lady who ran a uh, bordello or a brothel over in Ybor city in Tampa. And uh, she was a notorious lady of the evening. She had come from Paris and she had a real high end place. And now, at, at this point in Ybor City's history, is the 1880s, 1890s, the police aren't even allowed to investigate crimes in the Ybor City area of Tampa because it is run by the local gangs and the mob, and uh, which is you know the early days of the mafia and stuff. It's 1880s, 1890s, and they were still already doing this. There was the Cuban Club, there was you know the German Club, and all this, and they were controlling everything. And they did all the way till the thirties and forties, but this one lady ran this infamous bordello and her name was Madame Orr. And so she ran the Orr house, which I always thought was just the most hysterical thing. <laughs> I thought it was pretty uh, funny too. Talk about branding on the nose there. Right? <laughs> um, 
and all these stories about her were that she was just she was beautiful she was amazing to work in her brothel you had to win a beauty pageant that was hosted by the mayor of tampa and the chief of police so that just shows you how in the police were with these gangs and things um but what happens is is teddy roosevelt comes into town with the rough riders on their way to cuba for the spanish-american war remember the maine and they're yeah, and they're gonna sail out. Of, they they come into Tampa. They're gonna sail out somewhere, and uh, but, you know they're getting organized. And a couple of his Rough Riders go over to Madame Moore's house, uh, and then they don't come back because hey, it's a bordello. They're having a good time. They don't want to go to war. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they so so he gets so incensed that he informs the you know the governor this her place has to be burned to the ground. And so that's just this historical footnote that I just thought was fascinating. So as my haunted house fan, and I was also a big Teddy Roosevelt fan, I'm like, we're going to do a theme this year and it's going to be vampires versus rough riders. <laughs> and we made it from dusk till dawn. We figured that's what happened. They, you know, the, the rough riders were fighting. She was running vampires, uh, you know, as a brother. And it was like Bordello of blood, you know, uh, was, was, was the movie that we were theming it on. And now the fun thing is, is like you try to look up anything on Madame Moore, and if you look it up, because her stuff was pretty sketchy and very, you know, it was mostly word of mouth and folklore and all this, because that's not even a real name. That was an assumed name, you know, the Orr House, Madame Moore. But you look it up now, all you find is stuff from our haunted house. Her stuff is like wiped from the pages of history as it was. It was tough to find, but that's why I found her so fascinating, so... There's a lot of stuff, unfortunately, like that, that it seems like uh, all it takes is somebody has like a similar name and then everything kind of gets lost in history. Like I've looked up a few things like prime example, the Foo Fighters, you know, I need the weird information as far as the Foo Fighters go. It's hard to find that. But if you want to look up the band, no problem. <laughs> plenty, plenty of stuff, you know, and, you know, it, you know, even me, you Google me up. Uh, there's a poor Mark Muncy who's a dentist uh, somewhere and I feel so bad for him. He's a pediatric dentist and. You know, and I'm sure people come up to him and go, hey, I think I saw you on Ancient Aliens or or Finding Bigfoot or you know, or, or some or that Curse of Robert the Doll special on on Discovery Channel. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sure he gets that occasionally. People call in his office. Hey, do you want to be a podcast guest? He's like, for the last time, I'm a dentist. <laughs> I'm a dentist. Well, maybe if you want to talk about haunted teeth, I'll do that. Yeah, so I, I, I am going to go to his office one day and just say, I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> You just gotta you gotta give him a book at least so he understands what the background is. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, but uh, yeah, but that you know, but that's what you know. That was one of the things that started all, and then that's when we kind of said, you know what, I've gotta I gotta correct the record on these, and I gotta find these stories, and then you know, and that's when you find these stories that are, you know, sometimes scarier than the, you know, than the fiction. So, what's uh, what's some of your personal favorite ones that you found that you feel like are almost impossible to find on the internet besides the um, Madame Moore one? Uh, well, one we knew we had uh, exclusive, uh, and that's from our first book, Erie, Florida. Uh, that was one this little old lady had sent us. This was when I was running my web of you know, our haunted house. We had a website up. This was early days of internet uh, to give you guys, you internet sluice, a, an idea. It was a GeoCities website, and the address we had was an AOL address. So that'll <laughs> tell you how old this website was. Uh, and it was, you know, send us your stories because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, make the haunted house more stories like this. And one lady sent us this email 
and she lived in Lake Wales, Florida, which is in the center of Florida. And she had a strange story that she said in the 1940s, she lived there in an orange grove in the shadow of Bach Tower, which is this giant tower a guy built on one of the highest points in central Florida, which is a whopping 223 feet above sea level. So, yeah. Yeah, that just tells you that's a mountain for us. We call it Iron Mountain. So, you know, that's... <laughs> but uh, she lived in the shadow of that on this orange grove. And something weird happened. She said one night they noticed all their fruit was getting stolen out of the orange grove. So they put up traps thinking it was fruit rats or some other pest. and Or maybe somebody was stealing them. And what they caught was a small man, about eight to 10 inches tall, according to her description. And he was naked and hairy. And he knew it wasn't a baby because he had a beard and, and he was screaming at them in a language they couldn't understand. So they called the cops. The cops come and say, yeah, this isn't, you know, this isn't stealing your fruit, you know. And now they had heard of Tom Thumb. They had heard of, you know, Ripley's was kind of working over and Ringling was in Sarasota. So circus performers were not uncommon. Uh, so maybe that's why they didn't freak out about this at first. But they were still missing fruit. So they put up more traps. They caught him again. And this time they caught him with an orange. So they, you know, demanded the police take him uh, and find out what's going on with this guy. So the police took him in. They couldn't arrest him in handcuffs. So they took him in, in an orange crate. And I love the image of that in my mind. And my, my wonderful wife is my talented illustrator. And so that was one of the first illustrations she did for the book was this little guy sitting in an orange crate. Um, now, so that was just this crazy story I'd heard. And then what she said, when I called her after I read that, I'm like, this is weird. You know, what happened uh, after this? And she said, well, it got weirder. I'm like, wow, it got weirder. <laughs> she said, after he was taken, they, there was weirdness at the house. The house was like attacked by sticks and fruit and rocks and she said they thought they saw dozens of the little guys running through the woods, throwing the stuff at their house. And so they called the police again. The police brought the other guy back and they let him loose. And uh, then it all stopped. But they went, one of the farmhands said, oh, these are red hats. These are fae. And you've offended the fairies. And you need to call this bishop in Ireland and get a blessed rock to save you know your property to uh, appease these things. And so they did. And uh, the rock is apparently on that property. Now that was, you know, early nineties. We heard this from this lady and we didn't start doing the books and stuff till 2013, 14 uh, after the haunted house had been closed down. We'd ran it for 19 years. And, um, and I'm like, okay, I need to look up this story. And of course she had passed away in that time. And I'm like, well, I guess we're never going to be able to do anything with this story because she was the only version of it I had. I had no corroboration on any of this, but thankfully in that time we had this new thing called social media and I reached out 
you knew you grew up in Lake Wales when and said, hey, does anybody remember a very small man being arrested? You know, could have been, you know, you know, in, in the 40s. And a civilian worker for the Lake Wales Police Department remembered it and remembered him coming in in the orange crate. And she remembered that they tried to get a Spanish interrogator and a Portuguese interrogator and they couldn't find, he didn't understand any of that. And she remembers them letting him go. So now I had a second corroboration. That's awesome. We found out that 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 Orange Grove is owned by an orange company, uh, a big conglomerate now. It's still there. And uh, apparently the rock is somewhere on that property still. And we were following the directions that she had given us 20 years prior in that email. Uh, And um, sadly it led to where they keep their bees. So we couldn't get out and, you know, try to take a really good look for it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so that was a, you know, an amazing story in it, you know, kind of put us on the map. That was one uh, coast to coast AM had us come on and talk about. So I was going to say, I've never actually heard that one before. That one's uh yeah, I, at was, first, I was kind of getting almost like a like a baby Sasquatch impression from it, but after you said all the different little people, my mind instantly went to like the whole Native American little people lore, which connects into the Fey and everything. And it's like I don't know weird stories like that. You hear it, and it's like a one off, and you don't know if there's actually any kind of truth to it. But just being able to connect stuff through social media and finding that actual police officer that remembers finding that brings some actual like like proof to it that it wasn't just this lady sending you a, a random email. Like there's actual like government worker documentation of this person knowing exactly what you're talking about. Exactly what we were talking about. And what was weirder still is that town, Lake Wales is uh, they have a, they have a school there. They have a gravity hill there. One of those where you, you know, you go down a little hill and there's a big hill that goes up. And then when you're down in the bay, you know, the base of the little hill, you put your car in neutral and it goes backwards up the little hill. Like somebody's pushing it, right? It's one of those great legendary spots and they call it spook hill. And the town embraces it. They have a big sign how to do it. And it's right next to a school, which is Spook Hill Elementary, which is um, Casper the Friendly Ghost is their mascot. <laughs> so they love the idea of these gnomes. And they're trying desperately to find the police records so that they can, you know, tout that they're also the home of the gnomes. And, um, you know, and I, you know, I, I think, you know, looking at all these other legends everywhere, you know, you, you the moon eyed people, you know, you've got the, the puck wudgies, you've got, you know, all these other things. Uh, one of my other favorite Florida monsters is a Sasquatch up in the pan, up in the panhandle area who jumps around in the town of two egg. Cause Florida can't have nice things. We've got to name everything stupid. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, the, you know, the town of two egg has the two egg stump jumper, which is a Sasquatch. That's about two feet tall. That jumps from, you know, stump to stump. So, has that been something that's been seen through the years or was it like a one-off thing? Like yeah. maybe it was like a juvenile Sasquatch or is it like a specific no, that species that, that are smaller? No, that one's been seen a lot. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's through time. So, you know, at least, you know, a hundred years. So there's more to him than, than just a baby Sasquatch. Yeah. You know? At least with that one though, I kind of get more of like a faith feel and it's kind of like a weird thing where it falls between when you, when you start talking about Sasquatch, there's a lot of people that think he's, a fae being to begin with. 
but I kind of don't really necessarily steer into that direction. I have a lot of theories on it, of course, but specifically things like that, it brings in that whole idea of something being Sasquatch-like, but still being part of like the Fae. It almost kind of makes me wonder if there was like some kind of like a transition between like that being mating with something in our reality, and that's why these Sasquatch seem to be like something that's physical in our reality and not, I don't know, I, I don't feel that they're personally part of the Fae. Uh, yeah, I was just at the uh, Great Florida Bigfoot Conference, and like four of the five speakers were pretty much it's it's an it's a hidden primate. You know, they are justifying you know that it's a real you know physical form and has this and this and follows these things, and that you know they were justifying the numbers based on how many Florida panthers there are, and you know and how many you know so a, you know a, a, you know a giant predator can survive this. Yeah, again, Florida, we can't have nice things. He's not Sasquatch down here. He's not Bigfoot down here. He's the skunk ape because he smells bad and lives in the swamp. Uh, but, um, you know, but then there were those others that have their own other opinions. It's, you know, it's it's ethereal or hand-dimensional or, you know, uh, I like one guy's theory was it was the ghosts of a caveman. And that's why the footprints just stopped. So I was like, oh, that's that's kind of a neat theory. I hadn't heard that one before. And um, I like to call this stuff, you know, just stuff we don't understand yet. This is stuff we hope we do. You know, uh, I liked uh, Shirley Jackson, who did the great uh, Haunting of Hill House novel. She called, coined a term in that book called preternatural. Stuff we don't understand yet, not supernatural. It's, and it's, you know, and it was like, you know, for a long time, people didn't understand magnetism. So we pretended it didn't exist. You know, people, you know, to this day, chiropractic medicine is one of those things is it helpful to some people? Yes. But to a lot of doctors, it's voodoo. It doesn't exist. You know, it's, you know, you're, you know, how is cracking your bones helping you? And so, but people get relief from it. Same with, you know, acupuncture and other techniques. So this is that same thing. I think this is the same stuff. Ghosts, monsters, you know, aliens, cryptids. These are all things we just don't understand yet. And hopefully we do. So, you know, look at giant squids. We did, you know, when I was a kid, they were a myth. They were a monster. You know, they were, you know, Kraken didn't exist. Now we're like, oh, colossal squid, you know, giant squid. You know, oh, yeah, we've, we've seen them. we got cameras of them now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, all it takes is just that stipulation of people not being uncomfortable to talk about something. And that's where you really are able to start to understand something. And I mean, just like a lot of things, it's like a, a lot of the stuff in the past that's now considered like a science it wasn't, it was just that it was woo woo. So a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. So there wasn't really like a method of understanding to it besides just like the specific group working on it. But now, I mean, we're talking a little bit before the show. Uh, now that everybody's had a chance to really like research stuff, look into stuff, there's like people that are actually doing the research. There's people that are listening to the research. And then the people listening to the research are throwing in their stories. So just being able to interconnect with all of this, I feel like we're like on that edge where we just started being able to openly talk about all this stuff. So now we're at the principle of being able to to really break and be able to actually get an understanding of each of these individual topics and even maybe even the connection between all of them because everybody talks about how cryptids, aliens, paranormal, like all this stuff has some kind of e weird interconnection. And the only way we're going to get there is if everybody keeps throwing their stories in and we're able to start actually kind of connecting all the different pieces between everything. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's one of those, like when I first started this, even just a few years ago, the, the ghost hunting people would not talk to the Bigfoot people. The Bigfoot people will not talk to the alien, you know, people. The alien people won't talk to anybody. You know, it was just, it was one of those things. And now we're starting to realize these things kind of interconnect. And, you know, there's some phenomena that are happening with, you know, Bigfoot hunters that 
you know, the UFO hunters are spotting and then some phenomena with the UFO hunters are, you know, collaborating with some of the poltergeist phenomena and stuff. So we're starting to get some meshing of that. Uh, but you know, this is, you know, this is the things I, I am not a paranormal investigator. I am not a Bigfoot hunter. I am not a ghost hunter, but I go with Bigfoot hunting teams, ghost hunting teams, UFO hunting teams, and I get their stories as well as, you know, trying to corroborate stuff I'm researching. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun now that it's, you know, much op more open. Uh, one of the things in Appalachia was uh, that, that started that whole book was I was researching a UFO incident in South Florida. It's known as the Crestview sighting. And it was a school that a UFO, you know, comes down a uh, big saucer with a disc. And then it had lots of little ships with it that were spinning and looked little cigar shaped things, what we would now call the Tic Tacs. And uh, they were like swarming it like a mothership. And this landed right across from a school. So there were hundreds of witnesses, kids, teachers, everything. And they all didn't know, you know, you know, what the heck's going on. And then it flies away and the military show up and start interrogating everybody, all the kids, all the teachers. And one of the kids says, oh, well, they kind of hovered like helicopters. So the next day in the newspaper, oh, you know, 10 minutes of terror was just helicopters. You know, it was, you know, the kids, you know, saw unidentified helicopters. It wasn't flying saucers. And, you know, that was the cover story. And then now where things are, people are talking about things, the government, you know, uh, started doing their hearings in Congress. And one of the things they showed was those Tic Tac videos. And that's when I got a bunch of emails from several kids from that event who are now in their seventies, uh, you know, and are much older and they're going, Hey, I saw that when I was a kid, that's what I saw. They told me it was a helicopter, but you know, uh, Mr. Creepy Florida, Mr. Eerie Florida, yo, this is what I saw. And I want to tell you all about it. So I go and start interviewing these guys, getting their stories. And one of them just, you know, blew us away because he had, he had gotten interviewed at home by the government men. And, uh, his dad had a book where he, you know, it was basically like one of those old address books where, you know, he also had family recipes and aunt Jenny called, here's her phone number. And, um, but it had government men visit and it had their names. And I was flipping out because I'm like, Oh, freedom of information act. I might be able to get some, <laughs> You know, find out if these guys had any deathbed confessions, find out who their families were, all this other stuff. I was all excited. And uh, the first one was Lieutenant Sinclair Coast Guard. Okay, that's kind of an un unique name, neat organization. I should be able to get something. Still haven't yet, but I'm looking into it. Uh, the next name was like a Captain Smith Army Air Guard. Useless. That's, you know, Captain Smith's not going to do me any good. But we'll try. But the third name sent shivers down my spine and that's the reason we did the other book and that was because the third name just said government man cold and if you know your ufo stuff if you know your mothman history uh, and i asked the guy i'm like can you tell me about this man this government man was he in a suit <laughs> and was he smiling a lot 
Yeah, and I, I was trying not to lead the witness, but I'm like, just tell me about him. And he's like, oh, yeah, he just kind of sat there and smiled, didn't say much, uh, if anything. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, Indrid Cold was in Florida and working for the government. And I'm like, yeah, that's where my brain immediately goes with this. And I start doing some math, and I'm trying to figure out the dates of the two incidents. This was just a year after the Derenberger incident. And... Um, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, we've got Indrid Cold in Florida. So that's awesome. Wow. I was going to say even that combination of names was kind of a weird because you had Air Force, Coast Guard and then this random coal like random. It, it, it's just like a weird combination of people to begin with to even be interrogating in the first place. They be interrogating a, a six year old or seven year old kid. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of one of those things, too, that it just takes the Internet and that could have been completely scrubbed and somebody just rationalized it as helicopters. And nobody would ask another question about it. And it took somebody actually going and physically talking to these people to re-spark an interest in the topic that could have easily just been pushed under the rug. And it's it's one of those sightings that should have been up there with Roswell and all this other stuff because there were so many witnesses. But because, you know, they they did the cover story, it just it stuck. Yeah. So. That makes you wonder how many of these actual like experiences have been completely covered up that were a giant experience. And now it's a couple generations away now where we haven't even gotten a chance to talk to these people. Like, you know, if something something happened to people that were like in their 40s or 50s back in like the 60s or 70s, you know, like if that yeah, got covered up. Be 110, 100, you know, and so and yeah, exactly. People people think, oh, the 60s and 70s wasn't that long ago. No, people like me. But, you know, no, it's uh, <laughs> I even have to remind myself. You realize the 80s were, you know, 40 years ago, Mark. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I got to do that to myself with the 90s going, wow, the 90s were like 30 years ago. That's insane. Because <laughs> I'm looking at like yeah. footage and stuff from the 90s like, oh, this isn't even that old. Like that, uh, the Freeman yeah. uh, Sasquatch footage, of course. And then you got to you look oh, at yeah. it and you're like, wow, this is 30 years old now. How? <laughs> yeah, that's our, our good buddy Dave Sheely down at the Skunk Ape headquarters. You know, his, his Skunk Ape footage probably I think is up there with the Patterson Gimlin's probably one of the most fascinating footages ever. And he gets no credit for that because he runs a skunk ape headquarters, but he didn't start that till after he recorded all that, you know, it was, uh, and that was in 2008 and he's got, you know, minutes of this thing running through a swamp and that's, you know, swamp and he's running, you know, if that was a hoax, who puts on a fursuit and runs through a swamp in Florida you know, for a hoax. No, you know, that just, and, and especially back then, you know, that was, you know, was unheard of. Especially consider like the muscle mass too. If you really break down like a skunk ape, oh, yeah. having like the, the longer hair, once that gets wet, it has stuff in it. And somebody actually be able to like run through a swamp with that big wet suit on. Like the only way that you'd be able to really do that is if it was you yourself that you're running through the swamp with a suit, you'd be so way down. It'd be almost impossible to do. Yeah. And that, that footage is incredible. And um, yeah. And I highly recommend everybody pull that up on your YouTubes. Uh, and then, uh, but also, you know, if you ever get down to Everglades city, stop at Dave Sheely's place. He's got this world's second largest snake in, uh, in captivity. I think, I think it actually might be the largest now, but you know, they haven't been able to get Guinness there to remeasure it, but uh, beautiful uh, uh, reticulated Python named Goldie. And, uh, but you know, and then you can camp there and you can camp in the Everglades, which I recommend only doing in January or February. So <laughs> look out for them gators. It's mosquitoes and heat. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just out of curiosity coming from somebody that, you know, is from Florida. I, I'm always, I always like to ask this kind of stuff when it comes to like home state cryptids, uh, skunk ape. 
Um, have you collected any really, really interesting stories on skunk apes that you feel haven't left Florida? Or do you have any other cool aspects of the whole skunk ape lore to uh, throw into the pot as far as like actually being from Florida? Uh, one of my favorite stories, I mean, it, it has escaped Florida because so many people know it, but it is kind of a lesser known. Uh, and that is the Ochizi Pond Wild Man. Uh, that was back before they were called skunk apes, back before we called them Bigfoot. Uh, this thing was in a place called Ochizi, Florida, which is again, up kind of panhandle area. And there was a settler community and they were noticing things going missing, some things going great, you know, just disappearing. They thought I see they're those pesky natives or, you know, something else. So let's form a posse. Let's figure out what's going on and what they catch. According to the newspapers is an eight foot tall wild man. And the little newspaper illustration is two little guys with rifles and this thing looking like King Kong, <laughs> you know, twice the size of them in a cage. And uh, they had chained it up and they they didn't know what to do with it. So they sent it to the governor in Tallahassee on the stagecoach. So they they chained it to the back of the stagecoach. I'm picturing like a U-Haul attached to an old <laughs> stagecoach with this gorilla thing out of the back of, you know, a Bigfoot. And it goes to the governor. We have actual documentation of it arriving with the governor. The governor saying, this is stupid. I don't know what this is. Send it. It's obviously insane. Send it to the mental hospital. So it's sent to the Florida home for the insane, which is not too far uh, from Tallahassee, appropriately. Uh, and uh, and then um, it's we have the records of them getting it. We have the records of them taking it to be shaved. And then we have its death record, which was apparently a day later. We don't know what happened to it. It was buried in an unmarked grave. And so we were hoping, oh, let's dig it up. Let's get some DNA evidence. The problem is that unmarked grave has been covered. That whole area where those the graveyard one was is now under the new Florida State Hospital. So it's never going to be able to be dug up. Mm -hmm. They just poured cement over it, built on top of it, just like the Lost Cemetery of Tampa Bay. So Seems like all of the but, best, most solid proof we ever have of all of this weird stuff always uh, seems to be early 1900s, like somewhere in that area, and it always gets covered up, and it's like, it's right there, you know? Like, everybody, like, wants this solid proof of Sasquatch, and there's been so many times in history that it's just, like, right in front of us, and we end up losing it because of time and because, assumably, the powers that be kind of know what they have, so they purposely dispose of it in certain ways that you can't find this stuff. I mean, that's one of the things when I was working on Appalachia. I didn't put it in the book yet because it's actually going to go into a sequel book. Um, but uh, was all the the mounds that had giants buried in them. Uh, when they would do these excavations of mounds, they would report in the newspapers, you know, found 12-foot skeleton with a 10-foot spear, and and it was sent to the Smithsonian. And then, you know, and then this other, and it was, when I was going to school, uh, I grew up early days in uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio, and um, that was part of our history book, was talking about the giants in the mounds and stuff like that. And so when I started doing Appalachia, I'm like, man, I wonder why does nobody talk about that anymore? Why is that not, you know, a thing on these finding Bigfoot shows and all that? And then I realized that's all been scrubbed. There is no history books talk about it and all that. And I can find the newspaper articles that say, Hey, this was uncovered by this professor and it was sent to the Smithsonian. 
you contact the Smithsonian. What are you talking about? We never got anything. Don't know what you're talking about. You know, we don't know. Don't look at the boxes over there that mar are marked X. You know, uh, it's, it's, it, it really does. When you start looking at it, you're like, holy crap, they're covering that up. Why are they covering that up? And, and man, that's a rabbit hole. So. That's what I was going to say. It's almost like I feel like the back of the Smithsonian is almost like that scene in uh, the, the first Indiana Jones where they're pushing the crate yes. into the room that's just full of other crates and they're all unmarked. Like that's got to be what the Smithsonian's got going on. And as far as like the, the giant lore goes, I mean, I go usually go on Chronicling America. It's a pretty good site for going back on old newspapers up to like the early 1900s. And you'd be surprised what you find on there when you look up like Wild Man, Ape Man, Giants, and all of that stuff gets covered up. And the Smithsonian is was like on top of that for a while. I've even kind of like thrown in theories and ideas that originally they didn't really know what was going on with it. So they almost kind of took advantage of like civilians to kind of do the research for them. And then once they felt like they're at a good point, then they just pulled everything in and was like, oh, we don't know what you're talking about. Cause I mean, even when I was in school, um, I don't remember them teaching us about the mounds or giants or anything like that. Even once that was all stuff that I looked into all on my own. And you know, it's one of those things that it's like, Thanks to podcasts and other people doing this research now, it's starting to kind of come back. But, you know, three, four years ago before uh, COVID and everything, it was some of the more of that information that was just kind of getting pushed and scrubbed away on the Internet. And again, we're talking about a blessing and a curse. If it wasn't for COVID happening, people wouldn't be researching this and it wouldn't be back out on into the forefront of everything because everybody is now talking about the uh, the mounds and the giants and I mean, depending on the intelligence that you see Sasquatch possibly having, I mean, one of the ongoing theories for that is that they bury their dead in mounds, and that could be part of the reason why they tell you not to disturb these mounds is because they know damn well that there's Sasquatch, there's giant skeletons in these things, and they know as soon as people start digging them up, it's all going to be gone because... You know, it comes to anything. They're totally okay with digging it up. No problem at all. You want to dig up a Native American burial ground to build a condominium? No problem at all. When it comes to those mounds, better not touch them. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that's, um, you know, and that's all over. And, you know, and that's, that's, that's one of the, the scarier things. And, you know, we were, we were talking about that. It's like, you know, we're, we're looking for those lost cemeteries of Tampa Bay. And it's, you know, we found a few of them when they built various things. Every once in a while, they'll build a new parking lot. Oh, there's a slave cemetery under here. Oh, this is where the, you know, the family cemetery was for that one pioneer family. And, you know, we're, you know, we're still doing that to this day. And that's not just Tampa Bay. That's everywhere. Everybody's, you know, finding these things. One of the places we were working with is a place called, um, oh, Cal Prairie Cemetery. It's near uh, Dade City, Florida. It's kind of central Florida. And there's the Dade city battlefield is a historical site. Uh, there's a native American burial ground near there. And there's this little civil war cemetery. And one of the big retirement communities down here, that's a whole rabbit hole to go down. It's called the villages. And, um, you know, that's, that's one where you have to know what your koosh balls are on the back of your van to, to see what you're into sort of place you know which is crazy <laughs> retirees in florida you gotta love it but uh they wanted to buy this land and put a gas station there and make it a new entrance to their property they own a big chunk of central florida and there's this little cemetery and we we're like well yeah they were going to move it to the florida national cemetery which isn't too far from there which is like florida's arlington and um or one of florida's arlington's there's several and um they're actually all bigger than arlington but um because people come to Florida, they retire, they die. Military guys get buried in one of these places. But um, anyway, they were talking about moving the graves over there. 
So we got there because it's kind of a historical site. So uh, we worked with uh, USF, uh, University of South Florida. They have an archaeological team that was going to document the site. There was also the historical society locally because we knew it was bigger than what is there. There's only like a dozen graves, but we think stories go that there's more people buried there than are there. So they get the ground penetrating radar and they do find that it goes out past the fence. They found a few more graves and then they find seated graves. So it's natives. Mm. So this pioneer cemetery was on top of a native burial ground. So now it's become a historical site. We're trying to save it. And um, we also realized, oh, wait a minute. The interstate is right there. This native burial ground was probably under where they built the interstate and just nobody said anything when they paved the interstate and built it because, you know, why cause a fuss? We've got to move the interstate because native burial ground, you know, so, but that would have been in the you know thirties and forties, you know, so. See, that's one of those things too, that a lot of people miss the history on that when it came to like the whole native thing, it's been like a weird spot in American culture for a long time where it's like, you know, the people who are digging into like folklore and everything, they have a lot of respect for like the native culture, but for up until relatively recently, I feel like a lot of just like America and Americans didn't really have any type of like respect for the native culture. So, you know, they would have stopped to report like a, like a settler cemetery, but when it was a native cemetery, you hear these like horror stories about them basically just collecting up the bodies, leaving them all in a stack. And then when they finish, they'll just make a big hole and just throw them all in it and call it a day and not tell anybody about it. Like makes you again, wonder how much history really gets covered up. And even just history of being able to look into these locations, because I mean, a lot for me that I've noticed is that when it comes to the native burial sites, it's not that they like just picked like a random spot. There's something weird going on with that land. That's usually spots of like high strangeness. And at least for me, I don't think it's really, related to the bodies being buried there. I think it was that there was something weird going on with the land beforehand. And that's why they chose to bury the bodies there. So even so, like I said, a lot of like the native folklore is oral. So once you destroy these cemeteries, forget that there is even a settlement living there. Like you're losing all of the possible different folklore, all the different creatures that supposedly existed there all by just burying it up and pushing it off to the side of a freeway. Cause even by just even stating the fact that there was bar- like some natives buried there, um, it opens up the opportunity for people to actually do some research. But if you don't even make reference to it, then literally nobody knows to dive into the area. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's part of all of this is, you know, some of the things we've been able to save uh, thanks to, you know, just, you know, research and stuff is, is incredible. And, and, you know, some of the things it's, you know, parts of history we want to forget, you know, look at uh, Rosewood, which was, uh, you know, a, an entire town that was massacred, uh, uh, an African-American town that was wiped out by the Ku Klux Klan. And Florida just pretends it didn't happen. It just wiped out, disappears from history. And it takes, you know, a movie in the 90s to remind people it happened. Uh, and even then it was, you know, they didn't even tell the whole story. And, um, you know, and that's that that's other things, you know, that aren't in our Florida history books. And I was happy to put those into you know, our books to remind people, hey, there's there's some bad stuff, too. And, and some of these you know, legends are based on really terrible things. People don't realize that uh, one of the ones uh, I don't know if you need to do a trigger warning on this one. Um, oh, no, you're good. This one's, I mean, we've talked some dark stuff, but <laughs> this one's this one's pretty bad. Uh, there's a um, in St. Petersburg, my, uh, my home. 
there was a legend that I had heard about when we were doing the haunted house and it was called mini lights. And it was, don't say mini lights three times or you'll, or she'll come and get you. And I'm like, well, who's mini lights you know, or what is mini lights? And then somebody would be like, oh no, it's just three little lights will chase you. And I'm like, oh, three, what color? Green. Okay. Three green lights. All right. I, I, you know, that's a cool story. I never heard that. It was very bloody Mary, you know, say it three times and you know, bad things happen. So we put it in the haunt uh, because like I said, I like to put everything in the haunt. I just, I, I made a little led three little led lights on a spinner. So it would fly around. And I thought I was being cool. I was doing a mini lights thing. And then when we started doing the book years later, after the haunt shut down, uh, I, I'm like, Oh, we should do mini lights too. You know, and I should find out the story of mini lights. And I'd ask people, you know, what do you know about mini lights? What do you know about me? And all the people on the North side of town just said that, Oh, say it three times and the little green lights will come at you. But when I went to the South side of town, you know, past central Avenue and suddenly everybody was like, don't go messing with mini lights. Don't talk about mini lights. Mini lights will get you. And it's bad. And I'm like, Whoa. And then finally somebody said, well, it's because her name is mini lightning. And she is the voodoo queen of St. Petersburg. Mm. And her gator boys will steal your children. And I'm like, well, that escalated quickly. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. I love it. You know, I'm like uh, mini lightning. And she's the reason we have so much lightning in Tampa Bay. It's why our hockey team's called the lightning. You know, it's uh, she summons the storms and then she sends them. She hates Marie Laveau in New Orleans. So she steers all the hurricanes away from Tampa Bay up to New Orleans. And that's why Hurricane Katrina and all this other stuff hits New Orleans. I'm like, all right, but you know, what's her gator boys? Well, they're little gator men and they come out of the sewer and, you know, steal your children if you've upset her. And I'm like, holy cow, what a story, right? So, you know, right. we start researching that. I'm like, where the heck does this come from, right? And immediately me, you know, as I've done all these researches, I'm like, all right, so many lights, that sounds a lot like Mennonite. So maybe it's a Mennonite thing. So I start looking into Mennonites and then I find a, a circus boarding house over in Gibsonton, which is across Tampa Bay, which was a circus town that like we mentioned Ringling and all that, all the circus freaks would winter down here, hoping to get hired by Ringling or one of the other big circuses, or maybe one of the lesser circuses that were trying to get Ringling's cast offs. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a Mennonite over there that, you know, was mixed up with some little alligator men or something. And, and, and that's actually the closest we got was we found out there was a Mennonite who ran a boarding house that got burned down. Uh, and because they had circus freaks in, in the house. So I'm like, okay, maybe that's it. So we went with that. That's actually what I went to press with, with Erie, Florida. It was the closest I could come up with, you know, even knew I, even then I knew I was kind of reaching, but shortly after we went to press, we were working on the sequel book because at that time it had been a big hit. And I'm working on the sequel book, Freaky Florida. And the answer to many lights fell in my lap, literally. I was working at an archive at the St. Petersburg Museum of History. And I'm opening up this book on looking for another history legend. And this fan fell out. It's one of those, you know, you hold to cool yourself off at a tourist attraction, you know, a hand fan. Mm -hmm. And it had the advertisement for an, a, a tourist attraction on it. And it was an alligator farm in St. Petersburg, Florida that no longer exists, and but was there in the 1930s. And this alligator farm 
had on the front of it was the picture of the alligator farm, but on the back was two small African-American children being chased by alligators. And it said gator bait. And it all suddenly clicked. Beware of many lights. The gator boys will steal your children. Was beware of the men with lights. The gator boys will steal your children. They were men who came out into the south side of town at night with lights and they would kidnap African-American children that were loose because no one would miss them. And then they would throw them in the alligator farm to entertain tourists to be chased by alligators. Wow. That shows how dark history can really be. And just the idea that in any society that it would be totally acceptable to snatch people's kids and feed them to alligators for entertainment. Like I would have never guessed that that was the connection to that story. <laughs> exactly. But it, it all clicked. And then suddenly we start asking about it and everybody's like, Oh yeah, you know, that's why you don't go out at night. You avoid the gator boys. You know, you're avoiding them with the lights. And it was like, boom, that, that was just insane. So immediately we went to, you know, newspapers and published that and, that's now, now we know, you know, and, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> I was going to. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As too, is, did you kind of notice when you're doing the research that kind of maybe started to connect some dots that maybe like uh, like the white parts of town just saw it as like the fun thing and maybe there was like the, yep. the African parts of town where they were the ones that were like more scared of it? A hundred percent. And that's exactly what it was. It was literally, you know, culture and race and, you know, and the, the, the poorer side of town. Yeah. It's kind of messed up how something can be that close to realizing what it is, but it's just so far away that it's, it's like right in front of your face the whole time you're doing the research and you're really doing the folklore. And that's one of the hardest parts about folklore is that it's like, it can either be a metaphor for something or it can be something that's literally right in front of your face, but you don't really know which direction to go with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, and that's, you know, so some of these we find the real stuff and it's like, okay, yeah, that's terrible. But then, you know, and then other things we find, you know, that are, you know, yeah, even weirder and, and, and we're like, okay, well, this, what the hell is this? You know, and, uh, there's a, again, Florida, like I said, can't have nice things. Right. So <laughs> one of, there's a creature in the town of Barden and, uh, this, this is a skunk ape and, uh, he is this, He's like my spirit animal. I love this guy. He he's the laziest skunk ape. He's 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 fat. He uh he pants a lot because he's in a fur coat in Florida. He has a lantern so that he can see. He must be blind. Uh, he scared a lady off of her horse. He's like eight foot tall, and um, he's often seen sitting at a lakeside. You know, got his feet in the water. Uh, my favorite is somebody said he had a fishing pole. And he was like, you know, he was too lazy to do the Bigfoot fish, you know, with the hands <laughs> like the bears and stuff. He's got a fishing pole. I'm like, I love this guy. Uh, but again, Florida, we can't call him a nice thing. He's not the Mar- Barden monster, or the beast of Barden. No, he is. He is the Barden booger. And um, 
in the 1960s, they wrote a song about him called the Barden Booger Boogie. <laughs> I think I've heard and, that. Uh, and a family used to dress as him and, and do birthday parties. You could have the Barden Booger show up at your birthday party. Uh, but again, it's this silly thing. And we know in the seventies at the height of Bigfoot mania, the Barden Booger was being hunted and, you know, was in search of had come out. And so everybody was out there and it was this grocery store in town called Bud's Groceries. And that was like Bigfoot headquarters. Everybody was trying to find the Barden Booger. And Bud, you know, uh, Bud was still there when we were doing our books. And, you know, years later, and he came out and admitted that, you know, the sheriff told him, you know, stop whatever you're doing because somebody's going to get shot. So he told his friend who was wearing the costume, don't go around no more. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we, he admitted that that was a hoax, which was surprised us. But that was in the 70s. He didn't talk about all those sightings from the early 1900s, late 1800s. And now you think about it, some of the recent, we were talking about where Bigfoot and ghosts and, 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 other, and you alien stuff are starting to mix. One of the things people don't talk about much is sometimes when a skunk ape or Bigfoot sighting happens, there's this phenomena of lights or flat, they call it a green flash or, or, a, you know, a, or something that happens just shortly before something weird occurs. And that could very much be look like a lantern or a light in the woods. And then suddenly you see the big monster and then he fades away, but then you still see the light a little bit before he disappears. And people were talking about him like cloaking into the trees and stuff that he was more ghostly and ethereal. But, you know, and back then people were like, oh, that's just folklore. That's tales. But now we're actually discussing some of these things like Dave Pilates, you know, missing 411. It's, he's talking about the predator effect where they disappear into the woods and stuff. Well, maybe that's what's going on with these guys. So I, I love the Barton Booger. I hope he I hope he lives to be a thousand years old. <laughs> I was going to say people see it as lazy, but I think him actually using a fishing pole is probably a sign of intelligence that he's a little bit smarter than the average Bigfoot. Yes. Yes, I think this guy's, I think he's awesome. So, um, you know, and then again, we were talking about, you know, some of these things, you know, one of the, one of the towns in Florida is called Casadega and it was founded by psychics. It has more witches and, and psychics per capita than Salem. Uh, it's, uh, it's still there. It's near uh, past Orlando, past Sanford, halfway to Daytona, uh, in an area called the I-4 dead zone because a lot of weird stuff happens there. Uh, coined by the late great Charlie Carlson, who wrote the original Weird Florida, who was an old friend of mine before he passed away. And uh, but anyway, Casadega is this weird town that has a thing called the Devil's Chair. And if you sit in it at midnight, you'll you'll your dark force will appear and grant you a wish. But if you sit in that chair at midnight, a dark force will appear. It's called the police. <laughs> and if your wish is to go to jail, <laughs> that's fine. But you know, we debunked that place there's a lot of devil stuff. There's a place in Gainesville called the devil's mill hopper, which is a sinkhole on top of another sinkhole. And when they first found it down in the bottom, they found all these weird demon bones. It was dinosaur bones, but they didn't know what they were called then. So, you know, and so it had to be the portal to hell. Uh, so it was the devil's mill hopper, but you know, it, it's just, you know, it's a natural phenomena and stuff. Uh, it has a native American legend behind it, which is pretty cool too. But we do have the devil's tree down in Port St. Lucie. And that one again has real history and this is one of those that really blends history and folklore because 1970s there's a guy there named gerard john schaefer 
And if a guy has three names in a Florida newspaper article, he's either A, a politician, or B, a serial killer. <laughs> and this guy was B. And he was a, sh- a sheriff's deputy in Broward County, and he would pick up hitchhikers flashing his badge, and then he would take two together. He liked to do twofers, and he would take them to this tree at, near this old abandoned house, and he would tie them to the tree, and he'd do terrible things to them, and then he'd make them decide who dies first and do stuff like that. And then he'd continue to do terrible things to their bodies. Um, and, you know, he did that for years. And eventually he lost his job and had to move back in with his mother further north and um, started again as a sheriff's deputy up in that area, tried again, but he wasn't at that old tree and he didn't have that old place. So when he tried again, he they got away. And they reported him. And so he got arrested for false imprisonment and, you know, and, and he was on trial for that. But back at the original site, that's where they stumbled on the old house looking for some, you know, homeless guy stumbling on things to find and sell. And suddenly he finds the bodies, calls the police. And then they realize, hey, this guy a little further north doing this same thing. This must be him. So they search his house and in his house, his mom's house. And in his mom's house, they find his trophies, his shoebox, where he's written 86 confessions of murder. And then they find bits, you know, teeth that match the bodies down there, DNA. Uh, They find, you know, driver's licenses and other things he's taken from his victims. But they're only able to convict him on two, the the two most recent victims. Uh, He goes, he says, oh, those 86 confessions, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm writing a fiction book. Uh, and so these are how I could have done it type things. And he actually publishes the book in prison, you know, written by called killer fiction. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And you can find it at your local library. Do not buy it, please. It's actually not very good. Uh, but you know, and of we, course not. It was just hiding a confession. <laughs> yeah. And, and the money does not go to the victims. It just goes to the publishing company. They don't need it. Uh, so, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so he got murdered in prison a short time later, stabbed by his roommate 49 times. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Uh, but, um, we still don't know who those other 86 victims all are. They're trying to piece it together still to this day, but the tree, some reason people say the reason he couldn't do it was the tree had made him do it. And the tree is why he was so good at it for so long. So the tree itself down in Port St. Lucie is the devil's tree. And it used to drip black sap from it. And if you collected that sap, it would make, and use candles out of it, it would make your satanic rituals more powerful. And the city kept seeing all these people in cloaks coming to that old abandoned house and around that tree. And they're like, we got to get rid of this. So they bulldoze the house and they decide to chop down the tree because people are still coming. So the two guys that go to chop down the tree, they start cutting into the tree, their chainsaws break. So they, um, they go to get a new chainsaw and on their way out, they get in a car accident and both men die, uh, head on collision. So the legend of the tree grows, right? The tree doesn't want to be killed. So some lady gets the idea that the re- reason they died was they had bits of the tree in their car. So if she takes bits of the tree and puts it in a car of someone she doesn't like, like her cheating husband, 
that she's going to get away with murder because he's going to get in a car accident. But she didn't think far enough ahead because she got in a car accident and almost died on the way out of there. Um, so the legend grows further, right? Um, they tried to poison the tree. That doesn't work. They finally cement the hole where the sap is dripping and they fill that core of that tree with cement, hoping that'll choke it to death. Well, now it's grown around that. It's absorbing that. So it's, it's now got an impervious cement trunk. It's never going to die. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> the city finally buys the land and makes it a park and they send trails around that completely avoid the tree. So if you go there and you follow the trail, you'll come up on a couple creepy trees and they call those the fake devil's trees. But if you go down this other path and that's in my book, freaky Florida, uh, you can walk right up to the devil's tree and see it and just remember terrible things happened there and some victims lost their lives there. So pay your respects, but don't take pieces of the tree. Don't perform rituals at the tree. A couple times we've been there. There's been candle wax at the tree where people perform rituals. Please don't do that. It's a forest and it's very dry in Florida and there's wonderful little, you know, gopher tortoises and some other things around there that we love. Every time we visit, they all come out and say hi. Yeah. So please don't, uh, you know, don't destroy their habitat. It's it's, but it is an awesome place to visit. That's an uh, the whole idea about this tree being trying to be killed multiple times and it's still not dying is it's beyond me. Like it's weird. That's one of those things that's like almost undeniably weird. Where you you can make up your own kind of theories on it as much as you want, but there is something weird to it. And if you believe in anything that's kind of pertaining to the woo woo, I mean like you said, the story keeps growing with every single encounter somebody has with this tree. And I'm sure that there's probably even more experiences that are currently happening that you're yeah. probably going to have to go out there and find and put them as part of the record going into this tree. <laughs> yeah, of course, paranormal groups go there and, and, you know, and do, you know, EVPs and stuff like that. And a lot of other things happen there. You never know what's going to go on. So it's, it's, it's always amazing to me. So, and then you said that there was 86 people that supposedly got murdered at that tree and they haven't figured out who any of them are yet. Yeah. He may have murdered them other places. That's just, that was his haunt. So I'm always surprised at these serial killers that they seem like they're intelligent in the means of how they do everything. And then all of a sudden it just takes one little thing and then they completely throw out all their intelligence relating to the situation. Like the whole, like, covering it up behind fiction thing and it obviously not being a good book it's <laughs> this guy literally was just trying to turn it into a book in prison so that he could use it wouldn't be used against him because then it would be documented as fiction like full well this guy knew what he was doing and there was complete intention behind when he released this book i'm sure it was probably right before yeah. he had like a court case or something too yeah it was well he was trying another you know he was still saying he'd been framed and this was all you know just bogus stuff and you know he was not a good guy um, and you know, it, like if there's an inside edition where he did an interview and it, you know, if you really want to see what a sick man is, you know, watch that sometime it's uh, it's on YouTube and stuff. So, you know, but this, this guy was, you know, not good, not good people. So do you, uh, do you know his name offhand for any of the listeners that might want to look up, look him up? Gerard, Gerard, John Schaefer, Gerard, John Schaefer. That's right. Yeah. You said the three names in the beginning. You can't ever trust people with three names in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. He went by, he went by Jerry. So, but, um, yeah, he was, um, yeah, not a good guy. And that's what was fun is I was down there and some, uh, you know, uh, with a paranormal team and they kept getting Jerry on their thing and they, they had only read about him on the internet, Gerard and, or, or John, they didn't even 
put Jerry together. And it was like, oh, yeah, he went by Jerry. And they were like, oh, that's why the, the voice box keeps saying Jerry. I'm like, yeah, you know, think about it, gang. That's why history is important. Mm -hmm. History is important. So, um, yeah, I know. You know, and it's it's funny, the one a couple uh, times we've been there with a couple film crews. That was one of the places where weird stuff happened to the equipment and stuff like that. So. So out of all of the stuff that you've researched, just out of curiosity, um, obviously there's a lot of stuff that kind of lands on the fringe and stuff that's kind of explainable by history. But out of the stuff that's unexplainable, uh, like, I guess, what's your personal favorite thing that you've dug into? And what do you think has the most, like, uh, oomph behind it to actually be, like, a, a real a real thing? Because, like I said, a lot of this stuff's in the woo-woo. It's always definitely fascinating stories to research in. But, like, what what do you feel is, like, the most real one that's mysterious and doesn't have an explanation behind it. Oh, it's, that's gotta be. All right. So before we talk about this guy, we have, there are rules. I, I love legends with rules. You know, it's like gremlins, you know, don't feed them after midnight. Don't get them wet. <laughs> this is, this is a guy uh, I've worked with very closely. Um, uh, I, I famously did a documentary on him for uh, discovery channel last October uh, the shock doc is available on discovery plus. Uh, and, um, this is, so we're going to talk about the nicest, most wonderful, most handsome boy in Florida. And that is Robert the doll. And, uh, he's down in Key West and he is amazing. And that is got to be the, if you don't follow the rules, bad stuff happens. It just does. And, you know, he was the childhood toy of Robert Eugene Otto. And, uh, this is, you know, early 1900s. Key West is a boom town. His father brings this doll home from the German Steiff company in Germany and says, here's your birthday present. And it's, it's like the, my little buddy doll, uh, you know, it's, mm -hmm. this actually did inspire, supposedly child's play and Chucky. Uh, this, this kid loves the doll. It's his favorite toy. He gives away all he doesn't care about the rest of his toys. He, he gives the doll his clothes. Uh, and then eventually weird stuff starts happening and the servants are freaking out and they're like, stuff's breaking stuff's going, you know, the kid's talking to the doll, the doll's talking back to him in a different voice. We don't want anything to do with this. We're leaving. And so the parents say, Robert, you got to stop, doing this and he goes no i'm changing my name to eugene i'm gonna go by my middle name because the doll wants my name robert and we don't want any more confusion so you know nowadays we've given that kid some drugs and we wouldn't have this story <laughs> but um you know now you know they they agree to it and you know but then still more weird stuff happens they finally lock the doll in the attic we, you know, we can't have this um and the kid goes off to art school overseas and, you know, grows up, gets married in New York and comes and then he finds out his parents are sick, moves back to Key West and his wife finds the doll in the attic. And he's like, oh, this is my best friend. This is Robert. And uh, and so, again, weird stuff starts happening all over again. And this time with the wife and, you know, she's, you know, tired of it. Finally, he passes away. She sells the house immediately, but the instructions are with the house. You have to take this doll. We don't, I don't want it. And uh, 
so the new owners buy it. They have a short honeymoon period and weird stuff starts happening. And again, the doll moves on and on and on until finally some lady finally gives it to a museum uh, in Key West. The Fort East Martello Museum says, I'm done with this. Take it. This is Robert the Haunted Doll. And the museum's like, what? 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 We don't know what this is. It's the most haunted doll in the world. I don't want anything to do with it. And they put them in their archives. You know, no, no reason to display this weird thing. And then, but Robert wants to be seen and he starts messing with the staff and he starts showing up, you know, messing with plumbers, messing with electricians, messing with anybody who comes to the museum. So finally they put him on display and that's how they figure out he's got rules because people take pictures of him, and they find out if you don't take pictures without asking permission, they don't come out. If you're not nice to Robert, if you say bad things about Robert, if you, you know, don't say how handsome and good looking he is and don't introduce yourself properly. You know, you have to be polite to Robert. If you don't follow those rules, bad stuff happens, you know? And, you know, finally the big key is you have to say goodbye to Robert. If you don't say goodbye, you haven't broken the connection and bad stuff keeps happening to you. And now there is a get out of jail clause. So what I'm talking about bad stuff, it's, People have blamed everything from lost luggage to stomach you know, issues, food poisoning on their trip, uh, you know, plane crashes, car crashes, businesses failing, marriages failing, you know, and then deaths and other, you know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And the only way to get out of jail is you have to write Robert a letter and, and say, Robert, I'm sorry, I screwed up. And he gets, now this is where I say, this is why it's real, right? I get there. I get a weird feeling with Robert. I love Robert, but he, he weirds me out because you just feel it walking in. The Rightfully room. so. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Appropriately so. Um, but he gets a hundred letters a month of people writing him saying, I'm sorry, Robert, we screwed up. And, um, you can just spend a day reading those letters. They have them on cycle on a digital display, some of the key ones, but you know, if you ask nicely and are a nice archivist, you know, you might be able to get to read the, the uh, some of some other ones. Uh, my, my personal favorite, I always quote this one because I I've memorized this one because it's my favorite. So dear sir, Robert, like call him, sir. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I made fun of your leather face and called you stupid. Leather is actually very nice for a face and you are quite handsome. Please remove your curse. We get the message. Please fix my eye, my Xbox, and my marriage. <laughs> and I love that he put him in that order. Yeah, it was just <laughs> perfect. So when we filmed the documentary on him uh, with uh, David Sloan, who's Robert's handler, uh, he's he's amazing. And uh, he actually does a night in the fort. You can get a night with Robert and spend time. You know, David will let you hang out with Robert after hours in the museum uh, for a small fee. Uh, but it goes to keep upkeep the museum and helps, you know, helps Robert. But um, one of the things we got, they made a, to his exact specifications, they made a stunt Robert for the documentary. And the stunt Robert was made by the Jim Henson company. And that was awesome to see when they bring in the case and they bring it out and they have a specific puppeteer 
for uh, for Robert, and I got to be there when we introduced stunt Robert to real Robert, and I felt that connection hit. And then I started telling the film crew, okay, we now have a new rule. What's that? You have to treat stunt Robert exactly the same as regular Robert. So make sure you're always talking to him. Make sure you're saying nice things. Make sure you say goodnight every night when we're done and we're putting him away. Cause I don't want bad stuff to happen. And um, then two weeks after I filmed it, I was under NDA. I wasn't allowed to talk about it, you know, until it aired. And, um, Two weeks after filming it, both of my kids were in two separate car accidents and almost died. Um, so I had to write Robert an apology letter and said, I don't know what I did wrong. I thought I was doing the right things. Apologies, Robert. So Maybe he was mad because uh, he Robert, felt like there was an impersonator. <laughs> I think maybe, you know, maybe introducing him to stunt Robert was a problem, but he's 107 years old and, you know, Robert, we love you. You're the best boy, but... You know, you didn't need to be doing some of those scenes. You know, that's why you let a stunt man do it for you. Here, you know, I know you can put Tom Cruise to the test, but you know, he did it for you. <laughs> and uh, and I still apologize every time I talk about you. And I'm and here I am promoting you on this wonderful show as I talk about you on a lot of shows. And the documentary d- brought you a lot of attention. So you know, Robert, we love you. And I will say, Robert, goodbye. We're done talking about you. <laughs> Should have saw it as a form of flattery almost, considering it was Jim Henson that did it. I mean, but I mean, I totally understand the whole idea about the somebody possibly him him taking it as like somebody like taking his spot, possibly. That's kind of like how I would envision it. But one thing that I want to make reference on that I found really interesting is that I remember reading something saying that they made like a social media for him and people could apologize through that. But when it comes to this like paranormal stuff, I feel like it wouldn't do the same if it wasn't a handwritten letter. Like it has to be something like personal. So as much as they say you can send in your letters through email, I feel like at least for this or anything paranormal, you got to have that that physical touch to it. You have to physically write it down on paper and send it to him for it to really get across to him. Especially considering his age too, he's not he's not up to date on on the whole internet thing. <laughs> he he does have a Twitter. And they do read all of it to him every night. That's actually one of the things they do is they read his social medias to him and they read his Twitter to him. So it's, it's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I, I still say, yeah, send him the letter. Come on. Is, is it really that hard to send a postcard? <laughs> and especially considering a lot of the people that wrote these letters are people that didn't even believe in it until afterwards. That just yeah. brings some more validity to the whole situation too. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's, you know, when you're reading these stories, you're like, this is a person who does not believe in ghosts, does not believe in Bigfoot, does not believe, but Robert, yes, <laughs> he, <laughs> he's messed my life up. I've got to, I've got to write him a letter. So, you know, it's, so yeah, there you go. If you, you know, if you guys want a fun trip, definitely go to Key West. There's amazing places in Key West. It's the one place that, uh, you know, that's the craziest town in America. It, it once, uh, seceded from the union, uh, because they, they felt like they were being treated by a for, uh, like a foreign country during the Cuban boat lift issues. So they seceded from America, declared war on America, and then immediately surrendered and demanded $8 billion in foreign aid. <laughs> so, you know, that's an amazing town. And, uh, years later, the Navy, was trying to do some uh, military exercise with Key West and uh, they pretended like it was a foreign country and Key West found out that they were doing this. So they immediately reassembled their foreign power and declared, you know, we must repel the invading Navy 
So they got their fire boats out and all their fishing boats and they started spraying hoses at the Navy boat. So the Navy actually surrendered to Key West. This is the only time the American Navy ever surrendered. And so they called themselves the Conk Republic. And uh, <laughs> they have T-shirts down there that say, we seceded where others failed. So, you know. <laughs> Two things I got to do if I ever go down to Key West is go visit Robert and get myself one of those shirts. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, it's just a lot of fun. Have a drink at Captain Tony's Saloon, most haunted place there. So a lot of fun. too. So. Even better. I'll have to add that as number three to the list. <laughs> number three. Or, or pick up a copy of Eerie Florida, Freaky Florida, or Creepy Florida. There's a chapter on Key West in each book, and they all talk about different things. Robertson Eerie. I'll have to take that and use that as my tour guide when I go down there then. <laughs> That's what those books are for. Yep, exactly. So. And uh, also just for the sake of kind of bouncing a little bit more north, um, kind of the same question as far as like one that you feel has the most validity to it, but um, more so pertaining to Appalachia um, with yeah. Erie Appalachia. Uh, so the ones I think um, there are some up here, you know, you know we, we, we of course hit Mothman. We of course hit Flatwoods Monster. I think Flatwoods definitely has some validity. Uh, Flatwoods definitely has some uh, amazing stuff that happened. And um, there's also, uh, because, you know, that actually goes back to, there's some Air Force incidents that happened that day. Other states that don't talk, you know, that talk about the Flatwoods monster, they don't talk about the Flatwoods incident later that day, but there were things that happened then. Um, for the Flatwoods monster is another rabbit hole. I don't, we, we, we could go in two hours talking about the Flatwoods monster. So, uh, I, you know, you know, we'll talk about that another time gang. Uh, but, uh, the one I think that really, you know, struck me was this was another one that I don't think anybody had ever published. And I was so happy this family came to me with this and it was, they had gotten letters. Uh, they, they were, they, this family had written, this long story, a cousin was writing another cousin in West Virginia. And this other cousin lived in Olympia, Kentucky, and he worked at a mine in Kentucky and he was writing his other cousin in Huntington. And it was these normal letters that were things like, you know, looking forward to the wedding. How's aunt Susie, you know, all the, you know, the, you know, looking, you know, can't wait to see y'all. And here's this weird thing that happened in the mine. And we were blasting a wall and we opened up a cave system. And when we opened up the cave system, we found these two crazy looking creatures that he called boogermen, uh, bogeymen, uh, that were eating a bear. So, and the way he describes them in the letter is bug eyed, long stringy hair and curled fingers. And I immediately am picturing uh Gollum, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or something like that. And these two things are eating a bear, you know, and, and then at the end, he's like, uh, not sure what to do. Scared to go back in the mine. You know, would love your input. You know, see you at the reunion in two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> like just like this one little paragraph in this weird letter, and the the girl who had found this, you know, was reading her these these old letters and found that paragraph and wrote to me and said, "Hey, I I saw you were looking into Appalachia stuff, and I've got this weird thing, and it doesn't make sense." 
And then we found the follow-up letter that he had sent. So apparently they had sent him a letter telling him what to do. And we found the follow-up letter was the next letter was him saying, Hey gang, you know, thanks for, you know, the advice and, uh, you know, and, and something about like, uh, really enjoyed the crumble recipe, uh, apple crumble recipe or something. And then, and then he's like, so, uh, the, the, the minor captain ordered, uh, bounty hunters to come in and they killed the creatures and killed the bear, uh, and killed more bears. And then, and now we're going back to work. And, you know, see you soon. Can't wait for the wedding. See you at the reunion. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, this is, again, little one paragraph things. If nobody had read these letters, this would have been lost to history. Just so, subtle, too. Like, not even explaining yeah, it, really. Exactly. And she found them, and, like, immediately her paranormal skilled brain was like, hey, this is something. And I'm like, yes, this is. So she scanned it. We've, we've sent it to an archive up there. Now, I start looking into newspapers. Let's find out this mine. Did anything weird happen this time period? I have dates on these letters. I have scans of these letters. And I start looking into the dates. There is an ad in the Olympia, Kentucky newspaper from that mine hiring men to kill bears for that day that that happened. So, boom, there's your connection right there. Yeah. So we've got corroboration, basically. So now what's scary is that mine a few years later has one of the worst disasters of all time where a, they go to blow up another wall and it doesn't explode. They go to figure out what's wrong and then it explodes and kills, you know, a dozen men, probably more because they also didn't count day laborers. They didn't count minorities. So there were probably more than a dozen men, you know, killed, but uh, you know, but that's, that's history. So that one again, Weight, value, oh my gosh, this happened. What the hell were these creatures? And so the the Olympia bogeymen or the Huntington hobgoblins, because that story traveled to Huntington and they became the Huntington hobgoblins. Uh, so it's, uh, but I think the bogeymen of Olympia is the proper name for them. So. That's one of those things too, that it opens up in a whole other can of worms about these hollow earth dwellers, so to speak, or like tunnel dwellers. Cause if they were blowing up that other cave, I mean, there could have been something behind it where there was more of these things. And maybe that's why the delay was an, ex- it was a delayed yep. explosion. But I mean, there's so many different lore, so much different lore that goes behind all these different weird creatures that are hidden in the Appalachian mountains. And there's a bunch of like even older, like biblical lore that talk about different creatures and everything being hit under these mountains. And they were like demonic creatures and all of this. But at least for me, I mean, you hear a bunch of different like folklore about people that came from inside the earth, particularly in like Native American folklore. And it kind of brings in this idea to me that it connects into like the whole ancient apocalypse thing that I kind of feel like there could have theoretically been like groups of people that moved underground and then they kind of just adapted to be there. And then years later, you know, they don't come back out because they adapted to live in the ground. And we're just now finding these things. And we connect all of these weird folklore stories with them saying that they're monsters, but realistically there could be a pretty straightforward explanation that they were humanoids that essentially just, you know, evolved to essentially live in caves. But I don't know. I, I hear a lot about weird things being seen in the caves near Appalachia and they all seem to kind of have this like goblin look and feel to them. So, I mean, kind of escape the paranormal aspect of it. I definitely think that there's some type of like tangible physical creatures that are being seen regularly. And 
you know, just like most things, you know, miners are covering this up. Certain groups of people are covering this up. Or if anybody sees anything weird in a mine, they don't want people to be scared to work in their mine. So of course they're going to try to cover up the story as much as possible because they don't want to scare workers away. Like there's a bunch of different avenues on covering up these stories that seem to have a lot of validity behind them. And it, it's crazy to think, you know, like the mammoth cave system, we still don't know how big it is. There are people literally mapping that mine every weekend going through notches no bigger than, you know, two or three inches apart and they finally get in and the next room's as big as a cathedral, you know, and, and, and we're still mapping this stuff every week and it's been mapped since the twenties and we still haven't found the ends of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, they'll swim through a, you know, a gap through a water and suddenly it's, you know, a waterfall the size of Niagara falls. It, you know, it's weird down there and they're finding new life forms all the time. You know, it definitely, you know, makes you want to watch the descent a little differently. <laughs> um, one, one of my, you know, one of the creatures that I, I think also might have really happened is uh, the Crosswick Serpent, which is a uh, described as this, you know, snake with legs uh, by the people who saw it. it. A whole town saw this thing and grabbed a kid and ran up a tree. They finally, you know, got him to drop the kid and it ran and it went into a cave. And then they sealed up the cave. Well, guess what? We didn't see it again. Oh, yeah, because you sealed up the cave. But uh, again, this uh, it sounds very similar to a native creature that is you know, part of native belief system. I don't like to call it native lore or native mythology because this is just the way it is for them. And that is uh, the the uh, Mishapishu or the, uh, you know, the underwater panther. And the way they describe it is this horned headed serpent with a whippy tail that makes whirlpools. And that is exactly what alligator mound looks like. Although I don't think it's an alligator. I think it's a Mishapishu. Uh, we also, you know, think uh, serpent mound may be related because it has that same swirly tail. And, uh, but we think that's more the great serpent, which is yet another creature that lives in the earth. Um, and, you know, there's all these things. And I think, again, this was just, that was nature to them. This wasn't, a monster. This was not a, you know, a spirit or a demonic entity. This was a creature that the natives knew to respect and stay away from. And, you know, it, it would hunt them. And so, you know, we must fight back and there's, you know, cave drawings of it in Michigan that uh, are there. And, um, you know, so that's how far of a range it had all the way down, you know, to the Ohio Valley, you know, to the Miami Valley. And, um, you know, and that story is still there. So, I mean, that's all the way up on Lake Superior in the upper peninsula of Michigan on like the tip top. So that's like as far north as you can go in Michigan too. just to, and I'm sure it even connects to the other side. I'm sure that there's probably sightings of this thing being seen in Canada on the other side of Lake Superior too. Yeah. And it's the same type creature. And again, it's one of those, oh, well, that, you know, it's just this strange story. And it's like, if you put the two together and you read the descriptions, it's the same monster. It's a thing. It's a cryptid. It's a, you know, and, and you know, it's not a cryptid. It's, I think this is a natural beast. I think we've just, you know, it's, it's probably very solitary and, you know, we may have hunted it to extinction or something, but you know, it was a dinosaur, but you know, who knows? That's my theory on a lot of the native stuff is that it's stuff that was here that we hunted into extinction or somebody hunted into extinction. Cause it's particularly the native stuff there's way too much connections like all the way across the country about certain different types of lore. And the only real difference is just like their perspective of them describing it and giving their own name to it. But if you really break down the descriptions, a lot of these things are the same thing that they're getting seen 
all over the country. Another another perfect example is like the whole Windigo lore connecting in with the like Chinu and the Wachuge. Like all of them are very very similar. They spread across the country, even going up into northern Canada with the Alabaskan and everything. And people just want to deny the fact that there was more than likely some type of truth to this, not just typical Native American lore. No, exactly. And it's it's one of those. You know, they they they. they I get mad when people start, you know, I have a very many, you know, native friends that I use for help when I'm like, somebody sends me, Hey, this is this native monster. And then I'll reach out to, uh, one of my friends, Al going back. He's a, uh, Bram Stoker winning author, uh, and happens to be of, uh, a, you know, a couple tribes. And so I'm able to talk to him about, Hey, does, does this BS or is this really a, a native legend? And um, and one of the things he hates is when people start calling everything, you know, skinwalkers. Mm -hmm. Skinwalker is a Navajo thing, and that is the Navajo Nation. So don't talk about skinwalkers when you're talking about Cherokee. Don't talk about skinwalkers when you're talking about, you know, Choctaw or Creek or, you know, that's they have different names for them. They are different things, uh, but they are. You're like you said, it's similar creatures. These are things that change, you know, the and then even us, we, you know, we bastardize these things, you know, the the wampus cat is the Appalachian skinwalker. You know, it's uh, it's a creature that shape changes. It looks like a lady and then it turns into uh, a big cat, you know, like a bobcat uh, or a panther. And, uh, you know, and they, you know, these are things that were supposedly extinct in this area, but they're there and people see them. And then some have the deer horns, the deer antlers. And, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, that's on oh, that Wendigo. No, that's Inuit. That's up there. You know, it's, you know, so it's, but it's again, same creature, different names. So yeah, just, you know, don't, don't just say skinwalker as a generic term. That's, you know, you know, you're being disrespectful to the culture. So, but that's, you know, but you're, you know, hundred percent gang. That's what we are seeing similar things and they saw them and we're seeing them. And it's finally, we're able again, preternatural. Maybe we can finally get some studies done and figure out what the heck these things are. I mean, even connecting into the whole like skinwalkers, posed skinwalker thing, it's you break it down realistically. It's a medicine man who has the ability to transform into these animals, but it's usually through like a not positive means. And I mean, even just connecting onto like a possible other side of that, you have like the Shawnee Dogman Warrior, which is kind of like where people kind of connect a lot of like the dogman lore into, but essentially there were warriors that became one with the dogs to the point where they were able to transform into dogs and boom, it's, it's honestly kind of fits along the same lines. And then that's where it kind of comes into the whole idea of like, is there some kind of truth to it? Is there some kind of science to it? Is there a way to like figure it out? Um, it's all just, again, different variations of all like, the same type of lore, but region specific, depending on like what the group's intentions were when they were trying to do these different things. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and again, you know, with science expanding constantly, you know, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as, you know, dark matter. There was no such thing as, you know, the quantum entanglement. And we're learning these things are real. We're, you know, we're actually with the Hadron Collider, we're starting to realize it's a lot easier to go to another dimension than it is to go to Mars, you know, and, and, you know, so we're, we're figuring this stuff out. And I think maybe that's why we're seeing this rise of, of stuff again. Not only is it social media, it's also science. It's finally starting to pick these things up. And, you know, it's not, oh, hokum and boojums and, and uh, you know, and, and boogermen. And we got to put them in the, you know, put them in the holler and hide them. We're actually learning, oh, okay, this, this stuff could happen. You know, maybe, maybe the reason the Bigfoot tracks stop is 
there's some quantum entanglement or you know maybe time is cyclical and they are cavemen coming back we don't know we'll figure this stuff out i think that's part of the fascination of this i love that you know the government's actually talking about ufos again you know i never thought that would happen again after in my lifetime after blue book got shut down so you know but here we are so they just changed the name so that people weren't looking into it the same now they got uap instead of ufo because they're trying to separate it. Because I, I think the whole intention behind that is that, like, there's the whole idea of when you hear the word UFO and what's connected to it. So, of course, if they're going to start trying to disclose information or start to actually talk about it, they can't use the term UFO because that already has this whole atmosphere based around it. They got to change the terminology so that, one, they can either kind of hide what they're doing, or two, just to try to differentiate the whole like woo woo versus like the physically, like what the government is looking into kind of, kind of thing. But that's one of those things that all kind of depends on who you ask. Uh, as far as like I go, um, I often kind of wonder if it's mainly to kind of just dilute people away from like the whole UFO concept, because now they're just, you know, you want to look into stuff. They got a different word for it. Um, not that you get into anything like super conspiratorial necessarily, but you hear like chemtrails, but then you look up like geoengineering and then there's a bunch of stuff on it. They just change the terminology so that it sounds a little bit better. And then it doesn't connect in with the whole atmosphere that people have set based behind the conspiracy behind everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And you get those fun, wonderful new organizations and secret government, that you know, you know, programs and oh, it's not secret anymore. We're allowed to talk about it now. And people don't even realize that Area 51 wasn't declassified till 2013. You know, we, you know, it was like the worst kept secret. But you know, and I, I still think that stuff that's going on. You know, it's you know, it, I, I'm I'm still a big believer that Wright Patterson Air Force Base is the real Area 51 uh, because that's where so much weird stuff ties into in the heart of Appalachia, just on the edge of the Appalachian Mountains is. Right, Patterson, and that's I, that's a whole another ball game and another you know snowball of webs and you know you put those little dots on the map and suddenly suddenly Wright Patterson Air Force Base looks like a hot spot you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the Area 51 thing. As soon as people were on to Area 51, I don't think they actually had anything physically at the base. And then you get into like Bob Lazar talking about how they had all these bases hidden in the mountains and everything. So it's like, even Area 51. I mean, they could have miles and miles and miles and miles of research know. facility all in the mountains yeah and you're looking at google maps over the actual base itself and that's just the target point of hey look over here because we're actually doing stuff way over here <laughs> and some of the things he talked about were like you know um instead of everybody thinks you know fingerprint scanners he never said that he said they were scanning the veins in your finger and that's actually when i've gone into a couple high-tech security places for research and stuff guess what they have these machines that scan the veins in your finger it's like, wait a minute, that was Bob Lazar talked about that in 1987. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. There's a reason why they try to delete his information off of like everything. Because yeah. I mean, that's another one that everybody kind of debates it. And as far as like the conspiracy community goes, but I'm kind of on the field of I think Bob Lazar was 100% legit. The way that he told his story, he never like made anything sound whimsical from it. He just kind of said things exactly how they were and he never got anything out of it. He just pretty much got his identity and everything completely destroyed out of it. Uh, I mean, if there's anybody that's like a whistleblower that was onto some stuff, I definitely think Bob Lazar was one of those top guys that was getting repressed. <laughs> and we have proof that they, you know, they do do disinformation that, you know, we've had a couple ex government guys admit that they went to MUFON meetings to you know spread false information it was part of their disinformation campaign because they wanted the russians to think we were talking to aliens 
So, you know, but is that a double blind? You know, uh, that was part of the Snowden documents. Remember, he was the one who leaked a couple things that kind of said, oh, yeah, look, UFOs are part of our plan to screw people up, you know, and, and disinformation them. So, you know, why was that on this PowerPoint presentation? You know, we don't know, but. It's like another version of the Cold War that both sides don't have anything, but they both pretend like they have something. So they make the other side fearful that they're not figuring stuff out fast enough. So weirdly enough, they're actually pushing the research by scaring each other that they have more research than they actually do. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, with that or so, uh, we're about an hour and a half. So we can start uh, wrapping it up here. And I definitely love to have you come back on in the future. Uh, but I definitely like to leave okay. things on a high note. So I always like to do words of wisdom. So if there's any uh, words of wisdom you could bestow on the listeners, what would it be? Never moon a werewolf. <laughs> and always carry a silver bullet in your back pocket just in case. I learned that one the hard way. So, um, But no, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, no, I, I honestly, it's um, if you see something, say something. Don't take these to the grave, you know, with you. Tell your stories. To, you know, uh, if Crazy Uncle Joe saw a Bigfoot in 1977 and you kind of just have a vague idea of where he talked about it and and, you know, record that. Go to one of the Bigfoot reporting sites and report that. And then suddenly you see, oh, Joe said he saw it at this woods in the 1970s, you know, in June of 1976. And then you look on that website, suddenly June of 76, 13 other people saw something weird in that area. Crazy Uncle Joe wasn't crazy. You know, um, you know, that's, you know, if you saw a UFO, report it to one of the UFO sites. Uh, don't worry about it. You know, the men in black aren't going to come and visit you. Well, they might, but even then, then you got a story about men in black. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, that's, you know, Please, you know, if, if there's a haunted story of a building near you, put it somewhere. Let tell somebody. And if you don't, if you can't think of where to go, reach out to your, you know, your favorite author or your favorite podcast host. We'll 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 share it with the right places. It's what we do. So you know, we're happy to do that. Exactly. And I was even going to throw in too, if people are always scared to throw their names into stuff, you just contact the right author or the right podcaster. You don't even have to have your name in it, but you have somebody that's at least able to progress the story, maybe even get you some more information on it. So if that's a stipulation, don't worry about it. Again, spread your stories out. Let everybody know so that we can actually research this stuff and actually get somewhere with it. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, for anybody that enjoyed the conversation today, uh, where can they come and find you and find your books at? Uh, well, the easiest place is eerietravels.com. Uh, that leads to our podcast. That also links to uh, places where you can get our books. And you can also get art from my lovely and talented wife who draws all these monsters because they only pose for blurry photographs because they're all such divas. Uh, but that uh, um, you can also find our books anywhere books are sold, uh, you know, the, 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 the classic places. But we're in every... CVS, Walgreens, and Cracker Barrel in Florida, and I'm proud of that. You know you're famous when you're Cracker Barrel famous. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and you can find our podcast and all the podcast platforms and all that. And then, you know, you can find me on documentaries and some TV shows here and there, and I try to link them from the website. And of course, uh, to make it quick and easy for all the listeners, I'll add all of your information to the show description so they can find it quick and easy. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Uh, you're a plethora of awesome stories and folklore, and I'm really looking forward to having you back on and be able to keep digging into this stuff because for at least as far as my research goes, this is my absolute favorite to do. So I'd love to just be able to dig into your brain a little bit more in the future. 
Oh, glad to glad to share. And like I said, we'll 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 see you at a couple of events coming up, I'm sure. And uh, you know, just again, watch the website, eerietravels.com, and you can find all the things. If you guys enjoyed that episode, don't forget to uh, take an extra five seconds to leave a rating for the show on Spotify or take an extra 30 seconds to leave a review for the show on iTunes. And uh, if you know somebody specifically that you think would really enjoy this episode, don't forget to share it with them through word of mouth or reposting or tagging them on something that has to do with the episode on social media. Uh, If anybody wants to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, there's multiple ways to do so. Number one, you guys can shoot me a message on Instagram, which is the one that I'm the most active on. Uh, you guys can also email me at inquiriesallrealitypodcast at outlook.com, or you can go to the link tree, fill out the submission form, and that will go directly to my email, of course. I do respond to every single message and email that I get from you guys, so make sure nothing gets missed or lost in the spam or junk folders. Everything that I mentioned, all available down in the link tree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash podcast. And with that, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation, and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.